So if you're a guest here today, my name's Mark, one of the pastors. We're glad that you're here. It's been a great couple of weeks for student ministries. We sent 21 from our high school ministry down to our partners, Great Commission Church in La Ceiba, Honduras, where they had a great week of ministry. You see the team there on the sign. And they were building bunk beds and building a house and doing all kinds of ministry. They were encouraging the church, but they'll tell you they were encouraged far more by the people down there in Honduras. That's one of our international partners. And then this past week right here in this building at Sprecher, we hosted 61 middle school students who were out serving at 20 different sites and more than that all around the city right here in our backyard. 32 of those students were from our church. And I just want to say way to go, students, way to step out and love people for Christ and way to be part of our mission which is seeing people become devoted followers of Christ who change the world with his love. So let's give it up for our, our students. Way to go, guys. So I grew up with three sisters. Two were older, one was younger, which means I had four mothers. Oh, my word, did I have a lot of mothers. And my mothers, and including my dad, they were always trying to work on me, to make me a better young man or a little boy. And, and so I, I was kind of like the family project, I think, looking back, because I had a lot of work to do, you know what I mean? And so I think of categories of learning that um, were part of my growing up. There was a lot that had to do with manners and table manners, and it seemed like every meal I was getting another tutorial from my sisters. And I was learning about, you know, what you do with a fork and how you hold it. It's not a spear that you clench with your fist. About where to put your elbows and where not to put your fingers and what you're supposed to eat. And, you know, you had to eat all of it. And if you didn't, the timer went on. And if you didn't finish it by the time the timer went off, you were off to bed. And that meant I had to just really work hard at swallowing steamed spinach and Brussels sprouts and eating lima beans. And it was tough. But I was learning. I was learning. And they were working on me. And, and then there were these categories that had to do with safety. And thinking about it today, it's really funny. It had nothing to do with bike helmets or seatbelts because we didn't use those back then. So we were just banging around metal cars and things like that. But it was all good, right? Um, but it was like things like, hey, look both ways before you cross the street. You know, cross at the, at the intersection, not in the middle between the parked cars. Um, it, it would be things like, okay, you got a Swiss Army knife, but don't ever cut, the, don't, don't cut like this. Always cut like this. Cut away from me. Okay, I got that. And don't play with matches, which I usually got right, but I did get arrested or kind of stopped by the police when I was five, starting a little campfire in the back of our house. There was, a, there was a parking lot for the grocery store, and my buddy Steve Ward and I, we started a little campfire in the corner, and anyways, the cops busted us. And so so there, there are those kinds of things. And then there was, oh man, was there a lot in the area of work. So my parents from, from Switzerland, my mom from the German part, Swiss German, oh my word, the Swiss Germans, we're talking about a serious work ethic and it had to be done just the right way. So one of the jobs I had is I had to polish my dad's shoes every week. He had like, why did he need that many shoes? And they were like size 52. At least that's what it felt like with my little hand. And, you know, he had to, he had to clean it off with that brush, a certain brush for cleaning. Then there was a certain brush for putting the wax on. Then there was a certain brush for polishing it. And, like, you couldn't miss any spots. I mean, this is like, 
I don't know, mine wasn't military background, but it was like military. I mean, this is, and if it didn't pass the inspection, you had to go back and do it again. And so that was not just true for the shoes that had to do with how we dusted the stairs or how we swept the basement stairs or how we made our bed, only you had to fold in that corner. I was looking at my bed this morning, oh, my mom would be disappointed. <laughs> I mean, she would iron our underwear. I mean, she was just like, the Swiss people, they're crazy. They go out to their storefronts and they get their bucket of soap and water and they start cleaning the stoop every morning. That's what I'm talking about. This is serious. And so, you know, you had to learn how to work and work hard and do it just right. And then there was this category of how, how you talk to th people, what you say and what you don't say. So it was the please, it was the thank yous, it was may I be excused. And there are the, obviously the things that you shouldn't say. So, but as I was reflecting back this week, I realized my sisters, my dad, my mother never taught me to say this. That's not fair. That's not fair. I mean, have you ever seen a parent just like, as their kid is just getting ready to talk, they go, Mama, Daddy, that's not fair. Did you ever teach your kid that? Did anybody have to teach you that? My guess is no. It's just as like inherent in the human condition. You experience something that just there's a tilt that's going on. And the next thing you find yourself saying out loud is, hey, that's not fair. To which our parents always said, life's not fair. Which didn't help us at all, did it? <laughs> so, I don't know. Was it when... when you first discovered this? Was it like when you started looking at the, the pieces of dessert and you realized, hey, 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 my sister got a bigger piece than I did? Or at Christmas when you started, I mean, it was sneaky how we could do this. We could track how many gifts every one of our siblings was getting. And then all of a sudden you go, well, what? Wait a minute. That's not fair. When was it? Was it when you realized that your curfew was like at, at 9 o'clock and everybody else had 11 o'clock curfew? Or this is the humdinger, right? When all of a sudden one day you realize mom and dad just threw out all the rules for your youngest sibling, right? Like, like what happened here? I can't believe they're staying up this late. I can't believe you're letting them watch this show, this movie, whatever it was. And we would cry out, that's not fair. Now, as we get older, we realize that if we cry out, that's not fair, we start sounding like little bratty kids who are whiny. And so we don't say it out loud very often, maybe with a really close friend. But man, we feel it and we think it all the time. It's not fair. I'm doing all the work around here and he's calling me lazy? <laughs> that's not fair. That was my client. I closed this deal, and you're telling me I get cut out of the commission? Because now that person is going to carry that client? That's not fair. I served my tail off serving this, this table. Man, they had so many demands, and at the end of the day, they didn't leave me even a dime. That's not fair. What I ever do to deserve this? God, why... why why are they healed? I, I've been serving you my entire life. It's, it's not fair. 
I'm still sick. Why are they pregnant? And they don't even want to be. And I desperately want a child, and we can't conceive. How many years have I been here? How many extra hours have I put in, and I don't get the promotion? It's not fair. It's not fair, God, that I've been pouring into my kids, pointing them to you, and they don't respect me, and they want nothing to do with you. And then I see my friends' kids, and they've, they've just hardly leaned into it at all, and their kids love Jesus. It's not fair. It's not fair. Well, grab your Bible. We're going to catch up with this notion of it's not fair, God, here in Matthew chapter 20. So Matthew, first gospel after Malachi, before the gospel of Mark. Matthew was a tax collector, met Jesus, and was radically changed by Jesus. Matthew 20. The context of Matthew 20, back in 19, has just been the story of the rich young ruler, or this rich young man, who comes up to Jesus asking the easy question. Like, not an easy question. Like, a really important question. What do I need to do to get eternal life? Jesus said, well, here it is. And he lists off all these commandments that have to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. And the guy says, having heard Jesus list the commandments, well, I've kept all those commandments. So come on, tell me the answer because I'm not confident I've got eternal life. There's got to be something more. Jesus says, well, here's what you need to do. You go sell everything that you have and you give it away to the poor and then you'll have treasures in heaven, i.e. you'll have eternal life. You'll have confidence that you have it all, that you have eternal life. And Matthew says he went away really sad because he was really rich. And he couldn't do it. Then we catch up with Peter, who's always talking, and he's thinking out loud. And I get Peter because I think out loud. And so we get this. And for a whole bunch of other people in the room, we're going, stop it, you guys. It's crazy. I don't know what you're doing when you do that. So, but he was thinking out loud. And so the next little teaching is, Matthew says, was Peter saying, well, wait a minute. You asked him to leave everything? All his possessions? You know, give it all away? He says, we, we've left everything for you, Jesus. What's in there for us? And Jesus says, real quickly, he says, well, basically, there isn't anything you could give up for me that you're not going to get back a hundred times. You give up place and prominence and position and prestige, I'm going to make you rulers of God's people in heaven. You think you've given up family and fortune? I'm going to give you so many mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers in my family, and on top of that, eternal life. And then he finishes with that little pithy saying, this proverb in chapter 19, Verse 30, do you see it? But ma many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Which raises the obvious question, how does that work? Our story answers that question. How does that work? How do people who are last, like disciples who give up everything, have no place in prominence in society in the world's view, how do they become first? And how is it that the first in the world today, like the rich, could actually end up last. But primarily, how do the last become first? This story, verse 1, chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner, Jesus said, who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. 
He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon, did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to this foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius, which is a full day's pay back in the first century. So when those came who were hired first, the 6 a.m., right, the first shifters, they expected to receive more. Of course we would. But each one of them also received a denarius. A denarius? When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Of course they did. These who were hired last worked only an hour, they said. And you made them equal to us who borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So you see the bookends. 1930, 2016, the proverb. The first will be last and the last will be first. So when we see this, guys, when we're reading a repeated phrase, it's like these parentheses, and it's saying that everything in between these phrases has to do with explaining not just the kingdom of God, but how in the kingdom of God, the last become first. Are you with me? All right, so let's just ask the obvious question then. Who is Jesus talking about when he talks about the first and the last? Because I think it might be a little different here. In the first 1930 section, he's just talked about the rich. They're the first. They're the first in culture, in this world, in society. Because of their wealth, they have a place. They have standing. They have position. They have power. Who are the last? The people like the disciples who've given up everything for Christ. Now, in the second story, who are the first? Well, it's the first shifters. It's the guys that showed up at 6 a.m. and got hired to go do a full day's work. Who are the last? Well, the guy who showed up and the guys who showed up at 5 o'clock. They didn't show up. They signed up after the master went out and found them, like in the Home Depot parking lot. So the first group speaks of reversal. Ah, people who are first in the world, in society, that's not how it works in the kingdom. It's the people who've given up everything for Christ. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? The servant. What do you need to do to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus said, you got to be like a child. What does that mean? you got to acknowledge your complete dependency upon God for all things. Reversal. In the second story, though, he seems to be pointing to equality. It comes from the lips of the first shifters who say, hey, time out, unfair, this is busted up. You have made them equal. Ah, that's exactly right. Now he's teaching us something about the equality. How do, how is it that the last become first and the first become last? Because of the equality of the kingdom that has everything to do not with how hard we work, but how generous God is. 
So on this note of equality, Philip Yancey just says it so well in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. God dispenses gifts, not wages. Grace, not a paycheck, if you will. None of us gets paid according to merit, for none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of fairness, we'd all end up in hell. So what is Jesus teaching? Let's first say what he's not teaching. Because you feel it. You feel it for the first shifters, right? You feel it like, hmm. If that was me, I'd probably be saying that. Maybe not out loud, but I was thinking it. I'm feeling it. So what he's not saying is that injustice is not a big issue. What he's saying is this issue is not about injustice. But actually, there could be something going on that actually has some connections to justice and compassion and mercy. And here's what I mean by it. It's easy to read the story and go, oh, well, the reason they showed up at 12 or at 3 or at 5 is because they slept in and they're just, they're doing nothing, it says. And so they're just lazy. And that's why. Could you also read it in the story that says, well, they were there like the 6 a.m. shifters. So look, if we're looking for a day laborer to do the strenuous job, maybe it's out in the patio, maybe it's tearing up something, and, and, you, and you go, I know there's day laborers that hang out at Home Depot. We go to Home Depot and we see 20 guys. We're like picking out the strong ones, the young ones, right? Because we want to get this project done efficiently. We don't want to pay somebody a whole lot longer because they're not strong enough to get this job done. So there might be an issue of justice going on here. These people have been passed over, like the kid in gym class. He's always the last one to be picked. And right now you're going, why did you remind me of that? I hated gym class for that. But he's not teaching about justice. It feels, it sets up like a justice issue. So it's not about justice. He's going to get to that. So what is he teaching? Well, we know from verse 1 he's teaching about the kingdom of heaven. We've been talking about these kingdom parables. You think about the kingdom of heaven, you think about Jesus as the king. What is his leadership life? What is he doing? What does it look like to be in relationship with this king? What is it like? And what he's telling us specifically in this story, if we didn't have this story, it's always a great thing as you're reading the Bible and studying it, going, so if we didn't have this story, what would we be missing? Well, this uniquely points out the generosity of the owner. Of God. He's teaching about God is generous, ridiculously generous. He's teaching that there's a lot of work to be done. Like Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. He's teaching us that, that God actually invites people. The story is it. And so it was harvest time. And all kinds of vineyards needed workers to harvest the grapes, right, to make the wine. And so these guys just started moving around the hillside and going to the gateways of these different vineyards and talking to the owners saying, hey, man, you need any help? That's not the story. The story is the owner keeps going back, keeps going back, inviting people into his work. What is he teaching us? That grace makes us equal in the kingdom. Not when we start, not how hard we work. It's his generous grace that makes us equal. And when we've experienced that grace, we're not to be envious. 
We're not to resent it. We're, we're to rejoice. We're not to be mad. We're to marvel. We're not to begrudge it. We're to be grateful for it. That's what it's teaching. And Jesus' teaching is crystallized in the three questions. Did you see him? Verses 13 through 15. Check him out. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Third, are you envious because I am generous? So the first question. Jesus is correcting their false thinking here, thinking that, oh, what's going on here is an injustice. You are not being fair. God, you're not being fair. Landowner, this is busted up. He's saying, oh, wait a minute, let's just go back and, and rewind the tape. Remember when I met you in the parking lot? And remember what I said? I said I'd pay you a denarius. That's a fair day's wage for you. And you agreed, and that's why you came and worked a full day. And by the way, I paid you what we agreed upon. So if you got a bone to pick with me, let's just set the record straight. It's not a justice issue. It feels like it is. You got, you got a bone to pick on some other thing, i.e. my generosity, that you don't think they deserved. All right, that's the first question. The second question is this whole thing about, hey, it's my money. I'm the owner about God's sovereignty, that, that he, is, he is the ruler over all things. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Hey, this is, this is my money, and I can choose to do with what I have as I see fit. And you know what? I wanted to generously pay the, the 5 o'clock guys and the 3 o'clock guys and the 12 o'clock guys just as much as I paid you. And don't I have the right to do that? Because it's mine. And if I want to be generous with it, I can do that, right? Because it's mine. He's teaching us about the sovereignty of God and about his generosity. Peter, when he talks about God's generosity, he says God hasn't just got a 51% stakehold in this matter called generosity and grace. He's got all of it, all 100%. And he says this in 1 Peter 5.10. Read it with me. And the God of all grace who called you you guys reading it with me? Oh, I meant out loud. Sorry. <laughs> and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. I want you to see God of all grace, but some of you are in the trial right now. You need to get this verse up on your bathroom window, on your visor on your screensaver. This is a profound verse that I know in one of the hardest times of my life sustained sustained me for like two years straight. So I, I want us to see he's the God of all grace. And he gives grace upon grace. And we go, well, what exactly is grace? Is that just what we say before we eat a meal? No. Grace is all of God's goodness which means everything about God is good. And it's all of who God is moving towards us for our good. All grace. He's the God of 
all grace, not just on Fridays, not just when, when we've been good. This is who he is. This is what he dispenses. This is what he has for us. He's the God of all grace, and he can choose to lavish anyone with his grace, whether they showed up at five or have been on the job since six. He's the sovereign, the king over all things, completely generous. And it's that very point that sets up the third clarifying question. Like, okay, if you haven't figured out right now, your bone to pick is not about me being unfair, but it's about me being generous. Or are you envious? Literally, the word is, or do you have an evil eye? We sometimes use the phrase, you got stink eye, right? Oh, yeah. Do you have an evil eye? Because I'm generous. So he's, he's saying, first shifters, you think it's a justice issue. Actually, it's a generosity. It's a grace issue. And so I'm just going to set the record straight. So, so what does that look like, to actually be envious of grace? Well, if you go back to the story, you go, well, it's pretty rational. And you just follow the facts and you come to the conclusion that this isn't fair. And so you're envious of grace. What, what are the facts? We showed up at 6. We put in a hard day's work through the heat of the day. We sweat through our... Our, our garments here, we may have had a little heat exhaustion, a little dehydration. We got some blisters on our hand to show that we've worked all day. And, and when you put it and look at our hours compared to the guys that showed up at, at noon or at three or at five, we worked either six hours, nine hours, or 11 hours longer than everybody else. And, and just to make things worse, but we all got the same pay. You just follow the facts. It's very rational. This is busted up. This isn't fair. Envious of grace. And we feel the tension because we feel like, I think I'd feel the same way. I think I do feel the same way. But let's think through the generosity side of this. What do we know from the story? Well, it was freely given, right? This denarius, he didn't have to do it, right? He wanted to do that, the landowner. He pursued them to join his work. They didn't sign up when everybody else maybe was passing over them. They didn't deserve a full day's wage. They certainly didn't earn it, but they got it. Grace, unmerited favor, not earned or deserved. For us today, it could be, hey, I've given up everything to follow you, Jesus, and I've been doing it for a long time. Remember me? I'm part of the 6 a.m. chain gang. I'm a first shifter. I've given my life to you. I've been serving you since I was knee-high to handbook. I give. I serve. I've done it sacrificially. I've suffered. And then you're telling me this Johnny-come-lately gets the same equal status in the kingdom? Doesn't seem right. I, I, I've been working so hard at being a good husband, at being a good mother. And, and I look at that guy and like, man, his wife is so much more responsive those kids are so better behaved and so much further down the road. It's not fair. It looks like to be envious because we think that God owes us because we've been working for this paycheck, forgetting. Jesus punched our ticket, gives us, gives us the ticket. And so we cry out, it's unfair. Are you telling me 
that someone could show up in the 11th hour and have lived a reckless life, didn't care squat about you, God, trashed people, blew it timelessly, time again, time again, and then they, they receive your grace as they turn to you for mercy in the 11th hour? A Jeffrey Dahmer's? Are you kidding me? That's not fair. Envious of grace. So let's finish the thought. Was it fair that God had to send his only son to rescue a rebel like me? Was it fair that God would see his own son die on a cross? Was it fair that Jesus would not only live the life that we could never live, always loving God, always loving his neighbor, and then die the death that we deserve? That's not fair. Was it fair? Was it fair? Is it fair that we actually could have equal standing with Christ, joint heirs with Christ before the Father? So how do we know we're getting this teaching? How do we know we really get it? There's two things in the text. What's my view of God? And what's my response to his generosity? So I don't know what's informing your view of God. Right now, it could be your circumstances. It could be who you're reading and who you're listening to, family, friends, out in culture. I don't know if it's the Word of God. That's why the Word of God was written. And the Word of God centers on the living Word, Jesus Christ, who's called the Word, who is with God, and the Word who is the exact representation of His glory. He explains it to us. Do you see God as cruel, unfair, unkind, capricious, or merciful, compassionate, loving, forgiving? Our view of God. How do we see him? A generous or stingy? We know we're getting this teaching if we're growing to understand and delight, eyes open wide, to his generous grace that just gets metered out to us every day of our lives. Trust me, it is so easy in our day where we live to say it's not fair. You know, we just need to get out a little bit more and live with people, not just the people in La Ceiba, Honduras, or in Rwanda, or down in Haiti, our partners, but right actually here in our backyard. And we will less likely say it's not fair as we do life with people who regularly deal with injustice, who regularly have been passed over in society. What's my view of God? Is he generous? Is he stingy? What's my response to his grace? Ah, not just intellectually. See, this is the trick. This is the kicker. Like we go, whoa. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. Then no one should boast. Ha, I believe that. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's all in these intellectual theological categories that we can even affirm it. Ha, but that doesn't mean we live it. 
Like, oh yeah, I know that. And I got through the door and it was all by God's grace. But man, have I been doing the work ever since. And then we flip it. And it's this transactional deal that we have with God. And we know it's transactional because when we start to suffer in the midst of following Christ, which he said we should expect, and that's what he was saying when he said, take up your cross. But we were thinking, no, I was thinking we were going to get the crown right now. Let somebody else get the cross. And here's, here's the nub. When it's hard and your marriage is hard and work is hard and your health is falling apart, your finances are all messed up. Now you start going, what's up with that? Because like I've been doing the work. And we flipped it. We go, I know it, but I'm not living it. I'm, I'm thinking I'm still, I'm, I'm working for the paycheck. I'm checking the boxes. What's our response? See, for shifters, when, when our attitude's messed up, man, we, we are scorekeepers. Like, we know exactly what we're doing for God. We know what God has been doing for us, and we keep in score. And we're noticing what he's doing for other people and what they're not doing for God. And we're just kind of, we're just, it's like kids at Christmas counting presents, scorekeepers. And then we can get in these eddies of pity where we start feeling bad about life and sorry for ourselves. And we retreat into this eddy of works righteousness and scorekeeping, and pretty soon we're discontent and envy and jealousy is growing, and we cannot rejoice with those who rejoice. It's like, I can't do it because I'm so mindful of what I don't have right now. I deserve better. I deserve better. What's our view of God? What's our response to his generosity? So let me say a word to those who joined, you know, later in life. We'll call you the 11th hour, you know, the last shift. Or you need to. It's not too late. It's not too late. Jesus is still chasing you down with his generous love. It's not too late to turn to him. Wasn't too late for the thief on the cross. And it's good to just connect this with the young rich man who turned away sad because he couldn't give it up. That doesn't mean he didn't at the end of his life realizing, man, this money isn't, it's, uh, I can't deliver on all that I needed to deliver. It's never too late. Let me just say this for some of you who didn't grow up, in a Christian home, and you didn't have this experience where your faith journey began in your youth, it is really easy to go, man, I just feel like a second-class citizen because you guys have had such a further start, and you know so much more about this, and I wish I had that kind of instruction because I don't know what I'm doing raising my kids. And we got all this stuff, and you, you actually can start believing the lie that I know I'm in, but there's got to be like first-class and second-class citizens, and I'm definitely tier two because, man, it was just late in the day, and I made so many mistakes. No, you're equal. Maybe you feel like those who've been standing around and everybody and everything seems to be passing you over. Jesus comes and says, I love you. I knew who you are, and I'm inviting you into my work to experience the joy 
of experiencing grace and dispensing it. And then I'm imagining, because I was such a rascal in middle school, that in middle school, hearing this message, I would have gone, well, man, I'm having a good time. And um, I'm just going to get it together in the 11th hour. Because his grace is sufficient to meet me then and make me equal. So, man, party hardy, right? I'm just going to go after it, and I'm going to figure it out. Because, man, I got a life to lead, and I know following Jesus is just going to be the biggest bummer there could ever be. You can't have any fun doing that. And so I'm going to have all the fun and go for all of it right now. And then, later down, I'll get, I'll get it right. I'll make my peace with God. I'll sign up in the 11th hour. Here's the problem with the 11th hour. Because we don't know when it is. Because we always think, well, the 11th hour is like, what's the, you know, it's, it's, it's late 70s, right? It's in the 80s, right? That's the 11th hour. Maybe. Here's the other thing we forget. Is there are two thieves on the cross in their 11th hour. One who said, you know what? We deserve it. He doesn't. Let's stop trashing him and mocking at him and joining in in the frenzy right here. Jesus, remember me. Have mercy on me. He cries out to God. The other one doesn't. So don't assume that when you get to the 11th hour, you're going to hear his voice because the Bible says you keep pushing him away. You grow a callus over your heart. You may have nothing to do with him. Don't wait till the 11th hour. Today's the day of salvation. And Jesus is the one who helps us get it right to see the Father. He's the one that helps us get it right to, to know what it means to be generous and how to respond to generosity. He delighted to die for us, to be the, the indescribable gift of God. And he who did not spare his own son, Paul says in Romans 8, will he not also with him give us all things? He delighted to be the gracious gift of God, the dispenser of grace, never going, they don't deserve it. He delighted to do that. And lest we forget, it was costly he had to give up his life. And if we're people who've received his grace, then you'll know that you get it when we see a generous God and we realize we don't deserve it and we receive it, and to give our lives away like Christ to the people whose lives will be changed by the generous grace of God. So church, where are we at? A grumbling first shifter? Or just like an over-the-top ecstatic fifth shifter? You go, that didn't say anything about their joy. It didn't have to. All you know, if you showed up at five and got paid a full day's wage, that was a good day. It was like the, the, like the, the, the waitress that got the $400 tip. You don't have to say, so did that make you happy today? Like, are you kidding? Like, what, are you an idiot? Of course it made it. Like, it was unbelievable. It was a $15 tab, and they gave me 400 bucks. Yeah. It's awesome. Who are we? Who are we? Let's pray. Lord, who we are is we're a grumbling lot, no different than your people back in the wilderness who lost sight of your daily sufficient provision of manna, 
and, and the quail. And it's just so easy to just do life with eyes focused on ourselves, thinking that we deserve better. Lord, thank you for sending your son to forgive us for that self-centeredness and selfishness. Thank you for sending your son so that we get the clearest picture of your generosity. And thank you for telling us, Lord Jesus, that the generous life is the one you gave away. And so as we bask and receive, and maybe some for the first time today receive your generous grace and the forgiveness of sins and the hope of life with you today and forever, oh, Father God, help us to be dispensers then where we give our lives away so that others would be changed with your generous love. Until you come or call us home. And Lord, one more thing. There, there, there are people right here listening to me now that, you, that you're pursuing. You're, you're in their mind, their heart right now, and you're inviting them in. And I pray that you deliver them from the, from the lie that, they, that they're not good enough. That, that you would deliver him from the lie that actually my life would be better without Jesus. That, that you deliver them from the lie that says you will never have any joy. That, that, that I can put it off for another day. Lord, I pray that your spirit would knock down these lies and these barriers and that you gift people with new faith and new life and a great joy to experience your grace and then to extend it. In Christ's name we pray. God's people said, amen.